Welcome to Profiles. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter, and our guest this week is Eileen Miles. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers to the WFIU audience. Eileen Miles is a poet and author who has been described as the rock star of modern poetry and a cult figure to a generation of post-punk female writer-performers. Since giving her first reading at CBGB's in New York in 1974, she has performed and published her work prolifically. Her most recent work, a collection of essays called The Importance of Being Iceland, Travel Essays in Art, received a Warhol Creative Capital Art Writing Grant. Eileen was recently named the 2010 Shelley Memorial Award winner by the Poetry Society of America. Welcome to Profiles, Eileen. Hi, Shauna. Nice to be here. I wanted to start out by asking you uh, a little about your early experiences in New York City. Uh-huh. Uh, you came to New York from Boston, I think late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. But I know you were involved with the Poetry Project at St. Mark's. And can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it was so many things. It was a you know, stomping ground and a, and a source of education. I, when I came to New York, it was supposedly to go to graduate school, and I went for a couple of months at Queens College. But um, but I quickly discovered that there was so much, like the Village Voice was in its heyday at the time, and the back page of the Village Voice had a, listings of millions of poetry readings, and um, Patti Smith was starting to perform. And there was so much punk rock. It was an amazing time for poetry and rock and roll. And so... Um, I thought, why do I need to go to graduate school? I did start to hear about St. Mark's Church, um, both from my professors who kind of sneered a little bit at it. And um, and I just I got curious about this place and went over there and just discovered, and again, it was in the heyday of government funding for the arts. And so there were free writing workshops for people like myself. And so rather than going to graduate school, I went to the Poetry Project at St. Mark's Church. And so I took workshops there with Ted Berrigan and Alice Notley, and I went to every poetry reading there for about 10 years and, in my mind, saw pretty much everybody, and it was a great education. You mentioned Patti Smith. Have you worked with Patti Smith over the years? No, I guess I've mourned with Patti Smith because I I see her all the time, and we just give each other a little head nod, and the head nod gets warmer when somebody like Allen Ginsberg dies um, because we've had lots of mutual friends, but, um, but I experience her as sort of tough to know but great to... Um, admire. It's just the two of you are connected in my head, so I was wondering about that. How did you figure out how to write poetry? Well, first it was a great accident in the workplace because, um, or even starting in college, because growing up I was somebody who doodled and would just draw pictures of people to kill time. And when I hit college, since that's where I went rather than art school, my doodles became poems. And I found myself very drawn to poetry in college, but it wasn't what I wanted and it wasn't where I wanted to go. I wanted to be like a novelist or something real or be an astronaut, somebody who went someplace. <laughs> you know, I did, the life of the poet did not seem like something that would get me anywhere I wanted to go. But nonetheless, I seemed to be writing poems. And finally, by the time I was post-college and I thought, you know, I thought college would change my life because I came, up, came from a family that didn't go to college. I realized that there I was in just a bunch of jobs again. And at work, I wrote poems. So I just had the revelation one day at work that the poem was real and the job wasn't. And with that, I went off to New York and started to study poetry and meet poets and live in a, in a, in a poetry world pretty exclusively for a lot of my youth. And so um, I think the biggest thing about poetry is that you need time. 
you know. Um, you need time to read a lot, to think about it, to waste time, to write bad poems. Mm-hmm. You know, I think anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And I was really fortunate enough to have the time to write a lot of bad poems and the percentage of good poems. And that's still how I work. How did you picture the poet's life back in college when you thought it wasn't something that you wanted? It just seemed ill-defined and unreal. I just, I mean, I, I, mostly because I didn't know any poets. I think at one point in college, Marge Piercy came to my class and read. And I just was dumbfounded that there actually were poets, you know. And um, and then I think later that I, I saw Denise Levertov and saw a different model. But still, neither of these women had anything I want. They seemed a little bit like college professors, but sort of weirder. It was a vague outline, you know. But I think that's why I think, say, Patti Smith or even coming to New York and starting to see, because I knew what people in rock bands were like, and I knew what comedians on TV were like. There were a lot of cultural models, but none of them were poets. So when I came to New York and started to see people who either were poets or were things that poets could also be, like the soloist in a band was a kind of poet. And often friends of mine, like Richard Hell, a lot of those people are poets. Mm-hmm. So it started, or Joni Mitchell. I mean, I think a lot of the people that I grew up listening to functioned like poets, but they weren't. So it was it was a little stretch to realize that one could be a poet and not have all that music around you. You talked about having um, space and time mm-hmm. and the uh, the right to write a lot of bad poetry uh-huh. in order to get to the good stuff. What's your writing process like? What was it like when you first started and what's it like now? Well, when I first started, it was great because it was just, you know, I mean, after I got over the initial, you know, setting the alarm on the desk and saying, you've got to sit here for five hours and make these poems perfect. Um, When I realized that didn't work, it just started to be kind of grazing, you know, like walking around through the city and going to cafes and going into bookstores and reading a lot and, and but really writing pretty constantly because I always carried little notebooks of various sizes with me. And so I was always ready to write and did indeed. So early on, it was writing many poems a day, you know, and uh, and that was the excitement of it, that the fluidity of it. And, I, you know, now with, with that, I think the problem of having a career is having a career. You know, it starts to be that, you know, somebody wants you to write a recommendation, you know, or even doing doing. It's interesting doing readings of your own work actually interrupts the writing of work. Because it's a little bit like going to Japan to teach English. You don't learn Japanese, you know. And so I think one of the – I think like the the problem of the poet with a career is the same as the problem of the person with an iPod and a cell phone and everything else we have. It's like you have to kind of unhook and create space and time. And it's it's an action to actually make that space exist, whereas when I was younger, I lived in that space. Well said. Um, how do you move from – the sketches in the small pad to something that feels like a finished piece that you want to share out? You know, sometimes the move is not that distant. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you get it pretty right the first time, you know, and and that's good fortune. I usually know. I mean, once in a while I'm surprised and there's something in my notebook that's of great value and I thought it was – I forgot it. I thought it was unimportant. But usually when I'm writing something that's going to be a good one, there's a sense that the scale of this is different and it's going someplace deep and this is going to be out there pretty quickly. The best way I'm describing it, uh, uh, knowing whether a poem is good or not or done or not, I think of it as like when you see it like a wet dog and like a dog knows when to stop shaking, you know, and there are certain poems that just have that built into them that this one, you know, this one is done. 
So this might be a, a great time. Um, to read a poem. <laughs> to read a poem. Let me see what one of your done poems uh-huh. sounds like. Okay. This one's called Your Name. It's very hard to hunt from indoors, I'll say that for you. And text is at best an attenuated warning. Sound has a range of many desires, not just map. I subscribe to the Grandpa Bunny Bunny School of Theory. I mean, Genesis to write is a form of accounting, an approximate promise in a sunny mouth of time, a horny bet, or else hunters lolling around the fire. What did you get? How can I avoid it, this making a speech, long-limbed and maybe in July? Aren't we lucky to have captured each other in this hideous neon light? Why'd you grab that one to start with? Um, Because it was little. (laughs) I have longer ones. I thought a little one, you know. And it's it's a little bit one of my favorites. I mean, it's sort of like every now and then I write a poem that's sort of about poetry. And, you know, it's a bit of a speech about what I think it is today, you know, because what I think it is changes all the time. When did you write that? I think about a year ago. I mean, I have a longer one that I that I can read. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Give us what the, the other one. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. The Perfect Faceless Fish. It is a miracle that I should speak to delight you. I feel like a flag, more or less, but music is my breeze. I have many friends, rest assured. You have given me my water, and for this I must thank you. You have been described as elegant in your time, and it is long, the road to go. I am honored to accompany you. A pitcher is simply what I am, an old crease, a perfect book. You will miss me in your sterile anticipation of something to hang this pitcher on. I come and go, an edible saint. But if you feast on me, you will be hungry. I know your intelligence, carnal somehow, and I began to speak when you began to want me. Please don't interrupt. I cross my legs. I flood the darkened rooms of art for a while. And frankly, that moment is gone. We could only talk through our eyes, and now that is gone. But this is deeper than the marrow. We don't need rods, cones, those Sanskrit piles of things. I am seeing through a stain right now in your love. I am swimming for years. In a sudden absence of trouble, in a deftly handled conversation, I, a luminous fish, felt in the spectacle of impossibility a fragrant graze upon the world, an intermittent twitch, whisper. If I had hands, I would touch everyone. I vanish in the green of the background that goes on and on, made by those who recognize it that way. There is always something better to do. I live in a terminal, and so do you. Listen, we are trying to end everything by this enormous silence, brief. But it was the old thing, so it shall be very loud, very loudish in the squabbles we have about right and wrong and where the flagpole is and do we ever, will we ever have enough space to play the game? I am deeply knowing you, and I feel you have chosen me for this conversation before it's cooked, before anything is prepared, anything at all. The lesser details never mind the first exquisite choice that brought me into being this conversation a fishy birth. I've had you in my pocket, it's all that I know, but a knowing that is useless, without this acknowledgement in a many-chambered room. Ew, is that what you said? Enormous, darkly, I accept it. I flow around and fold into everything your comic desultory contempt, which I'm beginning to see functions as glue for you. The prettiness for me is the opening city and moving through it with you, the young old fold around your mouth, seismic. Trust that. I am gold in the reconciliation, gold in the anticipation, paradise, great ambiance. What's available is not of any use to what is me today, a stoic longing symbol of studying peace in outlandish quarters. Your long room in the night, 
your whole long body, which is faceless, too. To acquire trust is of utmost importance to me. I am foolish, I talking fish. The time is here for me to make promises to you that is sometimes standing in a bakery. Laughing becomes a professional wife with empty folders, and I see the muscle embedded, the one that can't be removed, in the beloved text that is offered. A torso-sized drink to me. Each time I break the surface, turn around, bubbles cascading from the incommensurate path of my tail, tentacle, limbs. You make me enough, so I hold a cup, gasping with laughter, in the T-shirts covered with arcane scribbles, carry the message, awkward grins and phones to their ears. Yours are wired to everything there is. You're an impossible telephone. I lift my head for the last sip of your, ew. A lamb leaps over the fins, the arms I would have we would hold each other in. I am waiting. I am waiting. No difficulty with gold. As I told your mother, I have obtained access to an uncontrolled intimacy. Fear not. Certainly I did not phrase it like that, but I met her in the most advanced communication terrain and exchanged messages concerning our difficulties with God and man. I am beginning to know. I am gold, a transforming ship. The clipped end of an utterance I was saving for you when I saw your swinging light, the door approach, and everything moves close. Thank you, Eileen. What I love right now is that as we're sitting in the studio and Eileen was reading this, she was tossing the pages onto the floor. You said that you wrote that uh, in an airport. Yeah, I was um, I was traveling. It was a quick turnaround trip. I was bringing my cat to um, El Paso where it seemed like he was going to be happier than he was, was living in New York. And it was very hard, but he was going to be happier. So it, it seemed like a very early trip at the beginning of the summer, but it was that horrible moment when planes were just like this seems like there weren't enough of them or something and we were all getting stuck on runways for five hours and seven hours and so I was in this hell of sitting there um, and suddenly you know I was like this is a space in which to write a poem and I was planning with my new girlfriend um, a dinner we would have in the upcoming week and she was like well what do you want and I was like fish and she was like well what kind of fish and I was like "Mm, something with no eyes (laughs) and she was like what else and I said well how about no scales? And she goes, oh, I get it. A perfect faceless fish. And I was like, that is so beautiful. You know, so it just sort of triggered this burst of fish speak. <laughs> and is this in a book of yours yet? No, but it's going to be in the um, Best American Poetry of um, 2010. Great. And it was in the Brooklyn Rail, which was pretty cool. Yeah, I read a great interview that you did in the Brooklyn Rail, as a matter of fact. And in that interview, you said something that really um, struck me. All a poet needs is a great window. (laughs) Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, you know, I think of that when um, I think of it in my own life, but I also think of it a lot when when a young poet asks me, should I go to graduate school? What should I do? Do you think it's okay if I become a doctor? And my sense about a poet's life is that you simply need a great view. You need to be someplace. It would not be ideal to be in front of a computer all day long at somebody else's behest. You know, I think there are probably a number of jobs I can think of that wouldn't be good. But I think any job that actually takes you into the world, shows you something that keeps changing and is sort of beautiful and consistent but morphing, you know, a poet needs a view. Because I think poetry is a description of reality. And so you need to be in touch with it. I mean, we love, you know, certainly my generation or our generation. I don't know how old you are, but people are always touting William Carlos Williams or Wallace Stevens because these were guys who had real jobs. 
And so there was just a suggestion that was sort of a little bit before the day of the MFA, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not certainly don't debunk the MFA programs, which, you know, support people like me, for one thing. But um, and also it's just the shape of the world. Economically, it was so easy to find time in the 70s. And it is not so easy to find time in the in the aughts or the the teens or whatever we're in now. So I think it's great for a poet to have a I had a student who was a lawyer this past semester. And I was like, please, please be a lawyer. Please keep keep writing poems and be a lawyer because I feel like we need you. You know, we need that disposition. What do you tell folks that are studying with you or colleagues of yours um, about sharpening the view so that when you look through that window, you have a poet's eye? Well, you know, I think poetry comes from poetry. I mean, I really am just a real advocate of reading a lot and reading widely. And I think people people often don't where or how to find books, you know, because bookstores don't necessarily carry um, poetry books in any interesting way. They might carry a few mainstream presses and a few good smaller presses. I tend to send them a lot to um, something called SPD, which is Small Press Distributors in Berkeley, California, because they're keeping poetry alive by being the single distributor of really new and good books. And their website is like any cool record store or bookstore where um, the staff makes picks. And so there's always, even on the front page, a few books. And they need our money, like join SPD, you know, become a member and keep them going, you know. But I think poets have to read, like, way back into the past. I mean, I think one of the sad things about poetry is um, so often it was it was taught, it was something we learned in school, and they only, they started with Shakespeare's sonnets, which are great, you know, and mm-hmm. we tended to not get past that, you know, and, and, you know, English teachers didn't quite know what to teach from today. You know, you might see a little Ted Hughes, a little Sylvia Platt, perhaps, which, again, not so bad. But, you know, there's such a wide world of poetry right now in the last three decades. And it just seems like somehow or other if poetry was kind of contemporary writing was put in the face of students today, they would get what we're doing. Do you ever play with form at all? Most of your poetry is what would be called free verse poetry um, or stream of consciousness poetry, I, you know, would be the typical names that might be attached to it. You know, form is a funny, it's a funny term because I think that, you know, certainly coming up as a poet, I wrote, you know, villanelles and pantoums. And, and once in a while when I'm writing a short poem, I'm thinking, hmm, is it a sonnet? You know, and, and we'll clip it at, to that shape if it can happen. And I wrote, actually, I have a Sistina in um, um, my last book that I was, I'm very proud of, you know, and it was, I think somebody, I think somebody asked me for it. And then the person who asked for it decided that it wasn't a perfect Sistina and then rejected it. But <laughs> it became a poem I was very happy to have written. You know, like, I think my poems are formal, because I usually have something I'm holding and something I'm withholding, and patterns that I'm following, and they may not be kind of obvious or exterior patterns, but they're interior. I mean, something's holding, the poem's good, something's holding it together, you know. I mean, so I don't believe in stream of consciousness. I believe in something John Ashbery calls managed chance, so that, yes, these are my thoughts streaming, but I've learned to edit, you know, and I've learned to kind of play with the rhythm of the flow, you know, so I think it never, it never comes straight out. Um, I mean, can you talk a little bit more? You've written in lots of different forms, uh, an opera uh-huh. or a couple of operas, I think. Um, your new book is a book of essays. Um, does your process or the way you approach writing um, when you're not writing poetry shift for you? Well, you know, it's just, you know, like a novel, for instance, is just a, a longer job, you know. So it's sort of like I, I, I work different. You know, I might start off in a very whimsical manner. Like I wrote a novel a few years ago where I was 
I had finished a collection of stories, and they came out, and then I was feeling that depression you feel after a book, like, will I ever write another book again? And then I remember thinking, well, why don't I just write a list of the stories I would write if I could write stories? And then I made that list, and then I thought, well, maybe I'll just pretend to write one of these stories. And then I did that, and as I was writing that story, I suddenly thought, oh, what if a novel is just a collection of stories sort of shuffled into each other? You know, and with that, I kind of, I followed that list. And just whenever I felt, you know, like the capacity or the room or the space to do some writing, I sat down and moved on to the next item on the list. Um, And I know that, you know, like, it's like writing a novel is like being buried alive. It's like being in a tomb. It's a horrible experience, but great because you always have something to do. I think you kind of, I turn, you turn to a different project with a different energy. Like writing an opera, which was really great experience, um, was by nature collaborative, you know, mm-hmm. which I really loved. You know, I met this composer who I had already known, um, came up with the idea, you know, and I was like, yeah, I'd love to write a libretto. And then we threw ideas around back and forth about what it would be, like what the subject was. Were we going to base it on some um, classical story. And we did because, I mean, ironically, the next the next book I have coming out is called Inferno, a poet's novel. And it's a novel about the career of a poet who happens to be named Eileen Miles and has a life very much like mine. And It's not autobiographical at all. Though. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, sure, it, it is. But I don't feel um, I don't feel compelled to tell the truth, uh-huh. I think, finally. And, and I, yeah, so I move things as I like. But so I had already been working on something that had to do with Dante. And um, Michael, the composer, had personal reasons for why he would like to do the Inferno. So we decided to do use the Inferno again. So we wrote an opera called Hell. And I think the way we worked was then I just went and I just wrote the libretto. And I kind of, you know, I guess I thought of a libretto or I certainly thought of Dante's Inferno as like an amusement park. So I just thought, what would the rides be? And so I thought, okay, how about a, you know, because I had read some really intense stuff about the environment mm-hmm. in terms of how frogs were affected. So I thought, what about a singing frog? You know, and I had noticed the preponderance of Icelandic bands. So I thought, why, do, why not an Icelandic band? So I kind of got all these spectacles together and then wrote songs for each one. You know, and I found writing songs, at least the way I wrote songs, was very much like writing poems. Except that there was this sense that somebody was going to come in and if they wanted to repeat, you know, when you talk about formal poetry, it's sort of like your poem becomes a formal poem because somebody's going to take the third line and repeat it. They're going to turn something in a refrain, into a refrain whether you give it to them or not. And you really kind of have to let go in a way of your text. It was a little bit like writing a screenplay, which I've never written and would love to write. I noticed that uh, Iceland seems to come up for you a lot. Your new book is um, – I'm not going to get the title right, so I'm going to let you say it for me. The Importance me. of Being Iceland. Why Iceland? Just by a total fluke. I, I – um, through an odd connection of loving a certain writer named Robert Walser and being somewhat involved in the art world and being on a panel, I hooked up with a curator who was doing an art project, which he invited me to take part in. And then when the and it was a project that was going to travel all over the world, and they had their first museum show in Reykjavik in um, 1996. And so I just got one of these wonderful phone calls that come in the in the career of an artist where somebody called you up and it's a scratchy voice saying, Aline, would you like to come to Reykjavik next <laughs> month? And I was like, yeah. And so I just found myself in Iceland. And I had I had been in Russia the year before on a kind of a funded I had a very hard trip to Russia, and it was really confusing me in terms of my idea of whether I was a good traveler or not. 
you know, suddenly I had just it was hell and I was crying all the time. I guess I was going through a breakup. So may, it may not have all been Russia, but it felt like Russia. And so Iceland was suddenly the you know, I was on a junket. I was being treated very care, taken care of very well, you know. But um, Iceland just became this astonishing place where, A, they had this wonderful language with a, which a, with a long poetic history, but nobody expected you to speak it. So it wasn't like going into a country where you're just being a horrible American speaking English. Icelandic people speak French, German. They don't expect anybody to speak Icelandic. So it was a very whimsical kind of ironic culture. And then... Um, the landscape is like nothing. I mean, I'm, as somebody who used to want to be an astronaut, I definitely collect landscapes that look like I could be on another planet. And Iceland just, just delivers up a lot of them. So that for so many reasons, including that they had a female president then, um, and as we know, they have a lesbian president now. So Iceland just seems to kind of tip things a little bit in all directions. And I just felt like I had come home or to one of my homes in this life, you know. And so it's, it's you know, like I, I wrote a long, in that book, I wrote a long essay, 50-page essay about Iceland, and um, I want to go back. How long did you stay there? I think th- uh, three trips altogether, only a month. So I've not really been stoic and really had a long haul in Iceland, and I would like that. But you're very connected. It sounds like a um, strong connection yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter, and our guest is Eileen Miles, poet and writer. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Um, switching topics a little bit, go, moving from Iceland to another touring experience of yours, I wanted to ask you about touring with Sister Spit. I knew that's where you were going. Well, I, I, another lucky connection. I think in 95, I had um, just published a book of poetry. Oh, I, I had just come back from Russia. A book of poetry came out while I was there. I hadn't done anything to promote it. I was still in this little lousy space, and I was like, what can I do for myself? And I decided to take myself to San Francisco for my birthday and do a reading there, you know, on my own dime. And I think I had already gotten a postcard from Michelle T., who I didn't know, just writing me a postcard like she was a friend. And I was like, who's this? And she called me. As soon as she realized that I was going to go to read it a different light in San Francisco, um, she called me and said, "Would you? we have this girl's open mic called Sister Spit. Maybe it would be so rad if you would come and read with us. And, you know, this is Michelle as a young, you know, Michelle is, you know, Michelle today with many books and, and a, a wonderful writer and human being, of course. But um, it was a young Michelle asking me to be in this open mic with her scene. And I was like, okay. And I showed up, and it just began this began this amazing connection because it was this world. But one thing it was like, I mean, I've been in a very kind of beat New York school language poetry. I mean, it's just kind of experimental poet world in New York for most of my time. And, and it was always sort of a split because there was a world of more feminist poetry and more lesbian poetry that existed. But I always felt aesthetically I really was in this other camp. And I always felt a little divided. But what I found when I went to San Francisco and met Michelle and all these women who subsequently went on the road and became Sister Spit, that people had actually been hearing me all these years, that there was an audience that I had that I didn't know existed, you know, that I was actually writing for these young women that, that 
I had not met yet. And so um, it was, an, I mean, like the, the array of writers that first night at the open mic at Sister Spit was just incredible. Fiction writers, poets, fun, you know, like all different styles of often lesbians, but, you know, like girls, female, butches, you know, just a whole kind of beautiful clatter of, of female poetic energy. So we went on the road that I, th- I think Michelle applied to, um, what do you call it, Michigan Women's mm-hmm. Festival, who rejected the- us. Really? Because they said, well, you're a literature and we already have Dorothy Allison and you're sort of like a band, but we've got Tribate and we've got, you know, Annie. They were like, they didn't want us. So Michelle was like, well, we're going to go on the road. If they think we're a band, we're going to be a band. So we got, you know, she got these two. There were a lot of benefits. She got the two vans. And so I went I went on the tour that first summer and it was an incredible experience. Um, what kind of places did you play? Everywhere, you know, like bars and New Orleans, um, you know, little um, anarchist bookstores and, um, you know, Asheville, um, just, you know, all kinds of, you know, um, Athens, a a coffee shop in Athens, Mm -hmm. Georgia, um, PS122 in New York, you know, big spaces and small spaces and um, big audiences. Boston was fabulous because so many of us just by perchance had family in Boston. And we got a huge audience in Boston, and it was very moving, you know. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a life changing experience. And again, more of that, you know, like, you know, seeing myself, you know, it's, it's a, you know, aging is a tricky process for all of us. And I felt like if if this is what it's like to be an older poet and to actually have a kind of a, a sense that there are younger people who are hearing you and who are turning you on and inspiring you, then I'm okay with becoming this, you know, like elder in the poetry world, you know. Did you feel like a mentor or a colleague in that experience? I think both. I mean, there was a way in which people sometimes were, I felt people, sometimes that thing with young people where you think they hate me, and then you realize, no, they're quiet, and they're even, they even have, like, they're shy, and they're sort of scared, and there's even some awe in there. And then, you know, and not always, I mean, there were probably people who, maybe there were people who didn't like me too, but, and then we just, there were many leveling experiences and ways in which we were really, you know, like, just very much not the same people, but with the same needs and thoughts and sense of humor and music. And Was it strange to go back to the New York scene after doing that? No, because going back to New York, I mean, New York is just like the most ideal um, place to return to, you know, from any place. You know, it's sort of like it's always changing and it's always there and it's always, you know, absorbs whatever experience you've had someplace else, I think. Yeah. I want to ask you, you've started teaching more and more over the last about 15 years. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, I guess I taught a, I've taught a little bit all the time since the late 80s. And then for five years, I was an actual professor in San Diego. And then I left that in uh, 2007. And then this week, I'm teaching, you know, in Bloomington and the, and the Writers Conference. But um, I do weekly things a lot, you know. And then I taught, actually, I, but I taught in Missoula, Montana last semester. I was the Hugo writer. And that was really great. I mean, when I left full-time teaching, which was more of an exception rather than the rule, um, I just decided that, you know, teaching one semester every year or two would be fine for me. When you conceptualize teaching either in a workshop form or in the academy, Mm -hmm. um, when you're at a university setting, what are some of the things that you want to make sure to bring to that experience? I think other poetics, you know. I mean, I think that one you can never count on what people have read and in a way in a, in a certain way I feel like all I have to share besides my own work and the thing that's tricky about workshops is that you actually don't teach your own work you kind of teach how your work happened mm-hmm. so it's you know so I kind of I show them the poems that that 
changed my life, you know. Yeah, that's pretty much, you know. And But though increasingly I'm really interested in figuring out how to actually, as a group, look at a poem together from all our different levels of experience and have a conversation, you know. And that's really difficult and really exciting to me. Um, what are some of the poems that changed your life? A poet from Boston named John Wieners. He was writing in the 60s and 70s, died, I think, probably about... 10 years ago, and he's got a collection of poems called the Hotel Wentley Poems. And um, they're just such a mixture of high and low and, you know, there's a beautiful social description of, of, you know, he's a gay man, life of a gay man, you know, in Boston at a certain time, but also kind of um, very, very, very lyrical and high-flown and high and low mixed in some exquisite way that seems like a prayer, you know. So he was, I guess he was another Boston Catholic, so... He's he's a great poet. Um, I don't know. Lucille Clifton, who just died, is really important to me. And she's, you know, sometimes I know that it's not um, a fashionable perspective, but sometimes I'm more moved by poems than a poet's t- entire career. And there's like two Lucille Clifton poems that I wish I could re- recite them, but I can't, but but that I continually use. You know, there's one called, I think the, it's the mother's story. Mm-hmm. And it's like a line of women I don't know came up and said, she said. And it's a small poem that kind of repeats. And it reminds me of this girls game I played when I was in um, puberty. I mean, there was, you know, pajama parties with a coming of age experience for females. And um, we would do all these. It was all pre-drugs, too, or at least when I was at pajama party. So we, we were doing all these things to get high, basically, without taking anything. And so we would, you know, like kind of hyperventilate and hold each other's, you know, like rib cage in and take short breaths and get, you know, and we played this one weird game where one girl would lie down on the floor and everybody would stand around her overhead. And the first person would say, she's dying. And then it would go around. So it would be like, she's dying, she's dying, she's dying, she's dying, she's dying. And then it would go, She's dead, she's dead, she's dead, she's dead, she's dead. And from the perspective of lying down on the floor, it was really scary. And then all the girls will kneel down and extend two fingers of each hand and levitate. And we all played this game. It was like little mystical. And it's weird. This Lucille Clifton poem contains that magic for me. And I don't know what she's really talking about, but um, it's a very, you know, so there's poems that are just like their magic unfurls for me. And I love to talk about them, you know, so much of what John Ashbery's done and John Ashbery talking about poetry. I've got one interview with him in which he says managed chance and he talks about the experience of experience. You know, it's like, what do you, you know, what do you write about experience in your poems? And he was like, no. I write about the experience of experience, and he's kind of talking about poetry as a kind of cheesecloth that we, you know, we sieve our experiences through. So I, you know, like there are just a whole collection of very beautiful texts that have really moved me over the years, and I love to bring them in. Do you think that the poet has any responsibility of being a, a witness or? A voice. I know Carolyn Forche talks about that a lot. A lot of um, other poets that I can think of, especially from other countries, Neruda, um, uh, Unamuno, Miguel Hernandez from Spain, talk a lot about the the poet as witness. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering about your thoughts on that. I mean, I think we can't help it. You know, I think that I mean, I just have seen some things as a you know as a female, as a person of my class background as a as a person who happened to be standing there as a as a you know kind of a citizen of history, 
you know? And so it's sort of the world that I stand in. I mean, we talk about a window, you know, like history is a window. It's like, do you care to look out that window and look through it and, and see yourself seeing, you know? And so there's a participating, you know, that I think, um, think about John Clare, who was writing at the time of Keats. And he ha- because he was a shepherd, he happened to have seen the first no trespassing signs ever. And they appear in his poems. And so he's, as a poet, he's really interesting to, to Marxists because it's a witness. Sometimes we're witnessing and we don't even know it. You know, I recoil at the idea of responsibility or obligation because I feel like I, as a kind of working class Catholic, there were so many things I was told I had to do. And if I did them, I wouldn't be sitting here because I went to Catholic schools and I wore a uniform. There was always this little weird voice over the loudspeaker saying, we have heard that there were Arlington Catholic girls smoking in uniform. And when you wear the uniform of Arlington Catholic, you stand as a model for a Catholic woman. You know, and so I really object to anybody. I mean, like as a lesbian, I've gone through phases where people were saying that if you don't put lesbian experience in your fiction or your poetry, then you're doing something, you know, you know, doing something wrong to the community. So there, even though there are writers who... I'm very sad that they never came out in their lifetimes because they were such important figures. I still feel like, you know, like one's privacy, one's decisions are paramount. You know, we have to be able to because we don't know when somebody's protecting themselves from something or other, we don't know what they're abling that otherwise they wouldn't be able to do. You know, so I think we have to we have I mean I I support freedom at the micro level too. So I think witnessing is is a is a outcome, but not an obligation. I wanted to ask you if you would share um, another poem. I know that you have a few others that you want you to be sure to read. Sure. Um, here's, you know, I, I would like to read something that it's actually, it's, it's prose about poetry, and it's from this next novel, and it's just a little teeny piece. We who write poetry and think about it all the time, who walk the streets that other humans walk, past pizza stands and trees, are citizens, meanwhile, of a secret country with its own currency that gets exchanged anecdotally, even whispered in the loud, thrumming silence of the day, in the galleries, the Marxist auditoriums, jammed bookstores, being jammed with thin and irregularly shaped journals and books and people, generally 20 or 30, the stinking bars where poets meet and read and in dozens, even hundreds of stained and damp diaries, the evidence accumulates, notebooks bent from getting shoved in back pockets or written during the long nights of the poet's youth. Included here is the bonus time of people who manage to stay young extra long, till forty or fifty, sixty or seventy even, at last croaking then. All of us whacking back drinks and sipping our beers, smoking, of course, several long ones going simultaneously in the ashtray. The poet's life is just so much crenellated waste, nights and days whipping swiftly or laboriously past the cinematic window. We're hunched and weaving over the keys of our green, our gray or pink, blue manual typewriter, maybe a darker stone, cold, authoritative, selectric with its orgasmic expectant hum, and us popping pills and laughing over what you or I just wrote, wondering if that line means insult or sex or both, usually both. The mind expands, getting up, taking a drag, looking down onto 14th, 11th, or Avenue A, into the sweet, quiet park between 2nd and 3rd. Looking out at the inner courtyard at Richard's on 5th Street, he clears his throat, laughing with a grin on his face, the total trombone of his voice. It's afternoon. Richard doesn't work today. Joint, he goes, passing. Then down, writing another couplet. We called them twos. We made rules first. Threes or twos? Ones! So it felt more like kids playing cards. Push my chair away, laughing. Here, try this. Richard resumes, 
pounding the keys. In the sexual encounter of our lives, when your time is uncommodified, amateur, kid, punk, unobserved, over, before, days swarmed, useless, private, unshipped, so to speak, life stays in the swarm of free-range sex, shifting into art, back to sex, art again. This is our belief. We take youth and space and time in the name of poetry, the privilege of our living to spend it like this. Absolutely all events and moments are, if not spun into writing, are charged wildly anyhow, set free to sail along strands of teeny infinitesimal jangling power lines of achaity, Chris's word. Wasted lives. We spend our time on this poetry orbit. It's myth. Thanks, Eileen. That was reading from The Inferno, which is your novel about uh-huh. a fictional poet named Eileen Miles. Right? Exactly. Yeah, it's coming out this fall. And you're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter, and our guest is poet and writer Eileen Miles. What made you um, decide, Eileen, to work on the novel? Or was it a conscious decision had you just started working on it? You know, usually big projects come from something that failed in the last project. And so I wrote this novel, Cool for You, that came out in 2001, and it was a little bit about, well, it was a lot about being a female inside of various institutions. And um, one institution that I used was like the institution of writing or poetry, and I even, I worked at the Poetry Project for, oh, I was the director for a while. And um, it was so, you know, so there was a story, and I wrote it, and when friends, you know, when I finish a book, especially prose, I, I show it to a few friends, and everybody said, ugh the poetry part, you know, get rid of that, you know. I mean, they just it just sort of was like kind of a dark part of the book. So I plucked it out. And so it just, when I got a little further and was ready to think about another book again, um, for that reason and maybe another, another reason or two, I just started to think that maybe it was time to write a book that was exclusively about being a poet. Um, also, I think when I've tried to sell books, it's really funny. It's like an agent will show my books to people and for – a long while, because I use my own name, um, editors go, well, who is she? So I thought, you know, that, because if you use your own name, you were obviously that little girl that, you know, fell down a well 30 years ago, and now mm-hmm. she's grown up and she's telling her story, or I should be the daughter of somebody or the person who, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm me, you know. So I thought, well, when they ask that question, the answer will be, she's the poet Eileen Miles. The book will be answering that question, you know. But what's weird now is that I'm, you know, like you keep writing, you keep getting better known. So now when then editors get the book, they look at it and go, yay, Eileen Miles. And they're like, no, I don't know, book about poetry. <laughs> so <laughs> I think in a certain way it's sort of like you can't, you, know, you can't write to please editors, but it becomes sort of a, a game. Are you conscious of your readers at all when you're writing? Or at what point do you become conscious of them? Well, I think it's, it's like a, it's like a blowing up a balloon. At some point when the balloon starts to inflate, when I feel like it's going really good, I suddenly am not alone. You know, I kind of feel excited about people seeing this, people reading this, certain people seeing this and reading it. So there's a kind of, I think as the, I think as the joy in the work increases, I think the audience becomes more present in my mind. You know, um, I often start with an idea and sometimes that idea is social, but the early parts of a book are really just trying to get the thing moving. What do you do to get it moving? You know, just sit down and write it. Do you write longhand or computer? Or? Both. It changes all the time. Each book actually. Um, poems, I al- almost always write longhand. You know, in the day of the typewriter, I use typewriters, but computers are really bad for poems, I think. Um, but So I always write poems longhand. But novels um, and fiction, it's just, it really just, this one started off 
by hand because it's about poetry. A big part of this book was written by hand. Um, you know, you talked about um, the space that existed in the 70s, that it was much easier to come across that time and space mm-hmm. that we weren't being pulled in different directions. Uh-huh. And so you had that more of that time to be able to sit before – sitting and creating were sort of the same kind of thing mm-hmm. that went on together. If you had that kind of time and space again, what would you do with it? I would do the same thing. I mean I probably would go to some places like Ireland. And I'm an Irish citizen in fact. Um, so I would like to go and live there for a period. But but truly it's like what I want to do is read and write. And uh, sort of look at art, look at art, look at lands. I like to hike in landscapes and, you know, just be in in the, the physical world. I think that's what we're – I feel like that's what we're supposed to get, you know, in our lives. It's like – I mean, like I feel like it's a trade-off. It's like I've taken a huge risk with my life. I've decided that my life is not about being conventional, about making a living, about being secure. And so I think in return for that, I should get a lot of time and space. You know, I think there's something slightly prayerful about it as a as an account of what an existence is up up to. You know, and I know it's an old fashioned idea, but that's what I want. You know, I just want to clear it out and do less and less, except for what exactly what I want to do. Um, what are you reading right now? What's on your night table? It's funny. I just finished reading a novel by Claire Massoud called The Emperor's Children, and it's a terrific. It was a terrific novel about um, about New York about relationships. I, you know, like I met her, I met her at a reading I did last year and I just liked her so much. And I think I had heard her read once and thought it was intriguing and just picked her book up in the bookstore and thought, hey, this is great. So I'm, I'm kind of doing a lot of, I mean, a friend of mine, Barbara Pollock has a book about um, art in China. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's fantastic. Let's see. I read Ray Amentrout's book Versed before, but I'm reading it again now that She's just winning. She's a good friend of mine, and she's winning everything. And so I thought, I, you know, I, I looked at her book. So, you know, the thing is, when you know, when somebody's your friend and you know them so well, you'd already know their work. So there's a way in which you don't read the book as a book. Um, so I went, I've, you know, I've gone back and I'm reading Ray's book. Um, she's a terrific poet. It's kind of interesting to see, you know, like in the 70s, the big thing, John Ashbery won all, you know, he won the National Book Award. They called it the Triple Crown, right? And Ray has won two out of three. So it's so great to see a woman of my generation get that thing, you know. Um, what are the most worn-out books around your home? I think everything by James Schuyler. Um, He's just pretty much one of my absolute favorite poets. And you poets. worked for him as an assistant for yeah. a while as well, right? Yeah, so his his work is always is always is always important to me. Um, well, you know, like actually, what's her, Susan Sontag's diaries are are getting pretty roughed up, you know, because I keep picking them up and I've just sort of been living with them for about a year, you know. Alice Notley's selected poems, that's around a lot. Yeah, I think that's that's what that's what comes to mind. I think there's more. Yeah. And what do you listen to a lot, music-wise? That changes, but right now my favorite band is a young group from London, XX. Really good. What makes you drawn to them? Um, they're a little, it's moody, it's smoky, it's um, lyrical, but electronic. It's, you know, it's kind of, um, it gets a little dance beat going, but it's also kind of meditative. So they change, they change paces a lot, but it's very, it's very intimate. In the past, it was people, um, you know, it was like uh, Tim Buckley and Tim Harden and Joni Mitchell and, Jam- you know, the singer-songwriters of the 
you know, 60s and 70s. And, you know, I'm a Dylan fan forever, you know. And um, so there's all these, uh, Bell and Sebastian. And, and somebody of our generation, um, um, Arthur Russell, who died in the 90s of AIDS and, AIDS and his work is getting re-released. And it's sort of really interesting as a combination of like Buddhism, Philip Glass type mm-hmm. avant-garde, and then disco. You know, it all comes together, and he's, like, really exciting to me. Um, I, I mean, I like a lot of electronic music. There's a caribou. There's a new group, Caribou, that I like a lot. Do you listen to music when you write, or do you like no. silence? Yeah, no, I like silence, you know. And I don't mind um, sounds outside, but I really don't like sounds inside, you know. So I'm sort of – I have a hard time. I I wrote a little bit of this last novel when my girlfriend was in my apartment with me, and is an unforgettable memory because I really can't write when somebody else is around. It's, I was in uh, Poland and in Russia, you know, a few years ago when I was that writing. same trip that you talked yeah, about Yeah, when before. I was writing Cool For You and I was so upset and having such a hard time and it got to be that my emotional state was so intense that I actually could sit in the room with perfect strangers and write 10 or 12 pages. You know, so there are exceptions but not ones that I crave. <laughs> you know, I like to be alone. Um, what haven't I asked you that I should ask you if we're going to know you and your work a bit? Anything about being female? Anything about being in the world? That and I just think the the purity of a really simple art form like poetry, and I don't mean pure because we're good or pure because we're truth tellers or special people, but I think the, the kind of like easy, you know, like access to response that is inherently in a poem is, is so valuable right now. So, I mean, I really felt, you know, so I feel very um, excited and proud and sad to be a poet at this moment in time because there's so much to tell and there's so much to live in, you know. And I think, you know, just also just like it's still shocking to realize that at this point in the 21st century that the fates and lives of women are still so radically different from the fates and lives of men and how that's not looked at kind of at all. You know, people are debating about this feminism over rather than looking at the larger question of the position of women in the world in all classes and nations, you know, that we still are truly second-class citizens. And that just goes, to talk about it is to be a big drag. You know, somehow or other, it's just like, now nah, you got to bring that in, you know, <laughs> like, and stuff. And, you, it's, it's, and so it's, 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 it's part, it's interesting. It's, I think it's part of what we teach, part of one of my reasons for teaching. And it's interesting because I often teach the work of men, but I always acknowledge it, you know, is where I still see men in the poetry world you know, putting together books, publications, books that get reviewed, looking at the cover. It's all men. It's all men. It's all men. You know, and I was like, can you not call this a men's club at least so that, that we'll know that you know what you're doing? You know, and it's this kind of like a, there's such a permission, total permission to operate in a oblivious space so as not to kind of, you know. How do we shift that? I think to write and do from a different position, I think, is is the most radical thing you can possibly do to kind of to bear in mind that what you're doing is radical simply by by being a speaking animal and acknowledging that speaking animal is female, you know, and comes from a certain moment in time and is living in this one, you know. Good answer. Um, we've been speaking with Eileen Miles, poet and author on Profiles. Thank you so much for being with us, Eileen. Yeah, thank you. This has been great. The program you just heard was recorded in June of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from 
Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.